Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the NDP sells its soul, the lockdown left scapegoats churches, and universities are pushing critical race theory again. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Well, while we were all watching the United States presidential debate, and my goodness, what a great time that was, the NDP was selling its soul or getting ready to in the House of Commons. This did not get a lot of attention in the mainstream media, perhaps because the mainstream media in Canada is more incessantly focused on American politics right now than the things that are happening in our own country. But on the night of the debate, there was a late night, middle night session of Parliament in which the Liberals achieved what they wanted, which was getting the confidence of the House. This was a vote on the latest COVID-19 relief bill, the bill that's changing up the delivery system for uh, molding the CERB program into something else and spending more money and all of that. And what happened was the Liberals decided, which was a bit cocky, but I think it proves their point, to make this bill a confidence bill. So if the bill didn't pass, then they would cease to be the government effectively. And the bill passed, even though the Conservatives were against it, the Bloc Québécois were against it, the NDP had negotiated, it thought, a win, so they decided to support the Liberals. And it gets worse than this, because it's not just that the NDP is saying, yeah, you know, we think this bill on its merits is good, so we're going to go ahead with it. The NDP has actually said they may continue to support the Liberal government for another three years. Now, let this sink in for a moment. This would mean that Justin Trudeau, who's been in office for one year, would actually serve out a four-year term, which in a minority government situation is insane. But that's how desperate the NDP is to have a seat at the table and how little they can afford to go back to the polls and have an election. This was a story in Huffington Post. Jagmeet Singh says the NDP could prop up the Liberal government for another three years. It was in an interview on Follow-Up, which is Huffington Post Canada's political podcast, and he was asked if he could see the Liberals lasting another three years, and he says, yes, the goal for me, like the test is, if they continue to support us in bringing about things like paid sick leave, that's something we fought for. If they support us and bring that in, that's something we can continue to support. Now, what the NDP is saying here is that they don't actually care about having buy-in from Canadians on their plan. As long as they can get the Liberals to give them what they want, they're going to back the Liberals, which means uh, Jagmeet Singh is basically saying that he'd be okay being the third-party leader in perpetuity as long as the Liberals just keep spending more and more money, and that's basically what he's doing here. Now, this does not say it's a guarantee that the Liberals will last another three years, but the fact that the NDP, after coming out and feigning criticism which is all I can call it, feigning criticism of the throne speech by saying, oh, this is wrong and it's just empty words. And then it was like, what, a day and a half, two days later before the NDP is like, you know, I, th I think we're, uh, we're going to support the liberal. Yeah, that throne speech seemed all right to us. So wait, which is it? Which is it? Is it empty words and a false bill of goods being sold to Canadians? Or is it something that you think is justifiable in governing the country for the next three years? So the NDP used to be 
and I'm going to regret saying this probably because I know how some people are whenever I say anything even marginally friendly to uh, to the left, but the NDP used to be a very principled opposition party. I mean, the Jack Layton era, I thought they were kooky on some things, but the NDP actually was very principled. And you know what? When the NDP had its shining moment in 2011, I said, good on them. But now the NDP doesn't even have the like hard left populist principles that traditionally they always had, which means that when something like this happens, they have no direction whatsoever, no aim, no ideological grounding. And that's why the NDP didn't really resonate with voters in the 2019 election. Jagmeet Singh was more focused on being hip and cool and doing his TikTok videos than actually rallying the troops like the NDP had always been able to do. And the liberals have actually taken that part of the Canadian political story now. The liberals are very ideological. The, the liberals, you may think that they don't stand for anything, but the problem is they actually stand for lots. They're a very far-left party now, and the liberals have moved so far to the left, there hasn't been a lot of room for the NDP. So this is where I think there could be, if you look in Ontario as a great example of this, the liberal brand in Ontario is so uh, just fatal that the NDP has now become the official opposition. And the NDP did this by actually becoming a, a pretty center-left party. I mean, the, the policies the NDP in Ontario has pushed for, yeah, some of them are like nationalizing dental care and stuff, but they're really just taking that left, center-left spot. Whereas if the NDP federally were to do that, do the Thomas Mulcair thing, and I know it didn't work out too much for Mulcair, and just say, hey, listen, we're, we're going to be a moderate, sensible, left-wing alternative, right now that would be very dangerous for Trudeau because all the moderates are being terrified out of the liberals. The moderates are being chased out of the liberal party right now because the liberals just keep moving further and further to the left. And them buying the NDP support, which is what they're doing with things like paid sick leave and all of this other stuff, that is going to keep going because the liberals have no moral aversion to spending money. So if the NDP goes to them and says, we need you to spend a billion on this the liberals are going to be oh let me get let me get the checkbook done there's no incentive for the liberals to say no because it props them up for longer and longer and eventually we're going to be in 2023 justin trudeau has been there for eight years and the ndp is still useless but they've been useful idiots insofar as the liberals are concerned because they will have been continuing to keep this government alive that canadians don't want and canadians would probably vote out if given the opportunity so this is something that people need to pay attention to. The fact that a confidence bill happened in the middle of the night while most people were focused on the presidential debate is kind of important. There is a desire right now to push the Canadian political narrative into the shadows. We had the throne speech. We're going to have, uh, you know, votes and stuff like that. But they're trying to do this without Canadians paying attention to it. And that's the huge problem here. And that's not going to go away. I mean, in all honesty, I saw a tweet from Mercedes Stevenson, and I follow the news really closely. I saw a tweet from Mercedes Stevenson the night of the debate saying that, uh, hey, there's this vote going on. And I said, okay, yeah, I had heard something about this. And then I, I didn't see anything in the mainstream media. I actually had to look it out. Normally, big stories will, I'll get push notifications to my phone or everyone will be sharing them. In these cases, yeah, the media covered it, but it did not really expand that much. 
So Canadians are not paying attention. And the fact that the U.S. election is coming up in a little over a month will probably make this worse. People in the media are going to be focused on, oh, Trump said this, Trump said that. Meanwhile, Trudeau is completely racking up debt, racking up deficit spending, and the NDP and the Liberals are basically forming an unofficial coalition government, and no one in Canada is any the wiser. So this is hugely problematic for Canadians right now, especially when you compound it with what's happening at the provincial level in Ontario, but elsewhere in the country as well, as the threat of another lockdown looms. Now, I spoke about this on the show on Monday with Randy Hillier, who's an independent, an independent MPP or uh, the equivalent of an MLA in Ontario. And what happened in the response to that interview was very great. I got emails from all sorts of people saying uh, thank you for having him on, people that have become big fans of Randy Hillier for being, in many cases, the one-man opposition to the politics of lockdown, which are, are not limited to one particular ideological group. And now you have the special interest groups that are getting in on this, pushing governments to shut things down. In particular, the Ontario Hospital Association has pushed a letter to the Ontario government. And I'll tell you why this matters to people outside of Ontario in a moment. But the Ontario Hospital Association pushed a letter saying uh, there should be immediate restrictions and shutdowns on non-essential businesses such as gyms, dine-in restaurants and bars, nightclubs, theaters, and restrictions on places like churches, synagogues, mosques, etc. So now you've got a bunch of healthcare activists that are saying we need to shut down churches, shut down restaurants, shut down all of these things. Basically go back to, I don't know if it was stage one or, or stage two, but go back to one of the early stages of the initial lockdown and ban people from getting together. So this is so ridiculous. And, and the narrative right now being pushed is that because we see cases going up, we've got to shut everything down. Even though hospitalizations are not going up, deaths are not going up, the cases that we are seeing, and, and I mean, take for you, you can't take for granted that case counts are an accurate measure, as we've talked about, but the cases that we are seeing are by and large from younger people, a lot of house parties, some bars and nightclubs, but it's behavioral, it's not locational. And this is the one thing that people need to realize. These transmissions that we are seeing come down to how people choose to behave, not the opportunity that's presented to them by the government or by any sort of business. I mean, the latest change in Ontario was shut down bars at uh, midnight. They have to do last call at 11 p.m. And I heard this. and I'm like, well, this is ridiculous because I live in a, a student town. I live in a, a town where lots of people are at a university and a college. So we've got a very uh, vibrant nightlife scene. And I know that what happens already when the bar is shut down at, I don't know, is it 2 a.m. they shut down at? I, this is how little I've connected to that world in my life. I think it's uh, 2 a.m. Uh, everyone goes to a house party and drinks from, you know, 2 to 4. So now the bars are shutting down at midnight. Everyone's going to go to a house party and drink from midnight to 4, and it's not really going to make a huge difference at all. So this is where we're going. It's theatrical. It is theatrical in nature. When we, when we see the hospital association calling for shutdown of restaurants, I'm not aware of a single outbreak from a restaurant, from someone dining in a restaurant. I'm not aware of any. In fact, most of the people that are going to restaurants are the same bubbles as one another. My wife and I have gone out to restaurants. You know, the server's wearing a mask. We sit down, we eat, we leave. There's no risk to that. We're not having big 20-person parties there. And if we were, we'd probably be the type of people that were going to have a 20-person party in a home instead of in a restaurant. But churches? 
There have been, I can count on one hand, the number of cases there have been linked to churches. And those are anomalies in the sense that you could find cases linked to any marginally close contact activity. But to say that shutting down churches is the way to go, we've been down this road. And there was an outcry, as there should have been, from people saying, hey, you're actually violating our civil liberties when you talk about shutting down places of worship because they're non-essential. And I was getting into a scrap with someone on, on Twitter about this the other day. I try to avoid scrapping on Twitter, but it sucked me in. Because people who aren't of faith, people who don't have a religion, they don't understand. They think that going to church is just like some silly thing that people do as a hobby on the weekend. They don't realize that it's actually something that Christians are called to do by God and, and people in other faith groups as well. I won't speak for them, but they are called to do this. They are commanded to do it. They have to do it. And that's not to say you can't adjust or amend the way you do it. You know, some churches were doing online services, parking lot services, drive-in style. I get it. And some churches have just modified the distance to go in and sit down in the pews and, and worship like you normally would. And the fact that this happens safely, without issue means that there is no license or justification to going back and saying, we are going to shut down places of worship. And it shows a profound disrespect that so many of the same people who thought that 10,000 person Black Lives Matter rallies were okay are saying that, oh, you know what? You got to shut down your church. That's not essential. I'm sorry, if 10,000 people can get together and take a knee against uh, police brutality or whatever they were protesting, uh, it changes each week. If 10,000 people can do that, then 100 people can go into a church. A couple hundred people can go into a church, keep their distance, and that is not harming or threatening anyone. But it's the disrespect that we see from so many people on the lockdown left towards faith groups. And it's not like it's a conspiracy of, the, you know, they've been looking for an excuse to shut down churches and now they've got one. But it shows a, a profound disrespect for the importance of faith in people's lives. And we do see that manifest in other ways. We do see it manifest whenever policy issues come up that are remotely related to morality or, or questions of, of ethics or morals. But when we're seeing it in this context, the fact is they just think, oh, it's just like a bar. The fact that they're lumping churches in with bars as being, oh, it's not essential, no one needs to do that, pretty much says what we need to know. So governments need to push back against this. The reason I'm talking about the Ontario case is because that's where we're seeing, I, I think, the most pivotal and critical discussion in that we have a conservative government that's saying everything's on the table, threatening lockdown. And I'll say I ran as a candidate. I could have been, I mean, I didn't come close, but I could have been theoretically a member of provincial parliament in this government. And I'm glad I didn't have to be. I have a lot more fun doing what I'm doing now than I, I would have if I were stuck in politics. That's not a, a reflection of any particular party. But I share that to say that there are a lot of conservatives that I'm hearing from that are say, that are thinking, okay, you know, I, I don't exactly like that we have taken now this approach to government that has very much targeted businesses who are not the sources of the problems. And all of the lockdowns that we see tend to be theatrical. We flattened the curve. The curve is a straight line. That was the whole thing. It was about it was never about preventing everyone from getting it. And I know I've repeated this, but I'm going to say it again because it's so important. It was never about zero cases, zero transmissions, zero outbreaks. It was about not overwhelming the hospital system. Hospitals are sitting empty. I don't know how many cities have done this, but I know some have built entirely separate hospitals, field hospitals that have gone unused 
because there was no surge. And we can be grateful for that. I'm not unhappy there was no surge. I'm actually quite glad that we didn't have this overwhelming of ICUs. But the whole point of it was that we want to be able to manage the cases. There was an understanding that everyone was going to get it. You wanted to protect the vulnerable. And I am fully prepared. I'm not one of these pandemic truthers or plandemic, scandemic type people that thinks it's not real. It is. And I know that all these people in the YouTube comment sections hate that. Tough luck. I think it's real. I think we need to protect the vulnerable. But that's where the focus needs to be. Protecting the elderly in long-term care homes, that's important. Preventing people who want to go from church, who are willing to keep their distance when they go to church from doing that because it's not essential, that is not okay. And the measured response that Canadians deserve is not happening. And we see it in provincial governments that are feeling completely justified and emboldened in lockdowns. And we see it in federal government now that the NDP and the Liberals think this is licensed to spend every dime and every dollar of taxpayer money they've ever wanted to spend. Give me a break. Back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. I know earlier I complained that people in the Canadian mainstream media like to focus on American politics. I'm not going to focus on it, but I am going to mention it because I, I'm not saying we shouldn't pay attention to it. We just need to not turn our back on things that are happening here. But I did watch the presidential debate, and as someone who's moderated debates in the past and moderated leadership debates in the past, I felt bad for Chris Matthews at first because I'm like, oh, this guy, like, he lost control from the very first question. And then I started to not feel bad for him because I'm like, you know, he's asking for it because he's not really doing much to assert himself as an unbiased and powerful force in the course of the debate. Like, I think that whoever was like set to moderate the next one's probably like, nope, not happening. Don't want to do this. And now they're talking about mic muting. So which is going to be even more political because it's going to be now this audit of, oh, well, how many times was uh, Joe Biden's mic muted versus Donald Trump's? And, and I'm kind of of two minds on this because I, I thought that the debate itself was terrible. I thought Biden was uh, good when he was speaking directly into the camera, but not good when he was scrapping because he just he started to lose it. There were a couple of points where he just couldn't get his words together. I didn't think Trump was that great, though. Like, I, I didn't think Trump was that good. I, I was expecting primary Trump. I wanted 2016 primary Trump where he's like rhyming off the zingers. He's funny. He, he was just, he gave across as just petulant at some points where, and I get that he had to debate Biden and uh, Chris Wallace. I get that. Did I call him Chris Matthews earlier? Or did I, I mean, if I said Matthews, I meant to say Wallace. Either way. Uh, like he had to debate both. I get it, but he wasn't, like, if, if you're going to be the bombastic guy, you got to be funny. And there's a difference between when you're on stage with 12 people and you've got to stand out in a primary because he just sucked the oxygen out versus one-on-one -on -one where it just it came across as very tiring. So like 90 minutes later, I'm like, okay, do I feel like we really got that much out of it? No. However, I do think that it was interesting. The, the one uh, opportunity that uh, Trump had to condemn white supremacy, he did. He did. He said, who do you want to, meet? Who do you want to condemn? I'll condemn it. He mentioned the Proud Boys. And now the left is saying, oh, but he didn't actually condemn them. No, because Trump said, stand back and stand by. I think he means, and again, I, I don't want to uh, put words in his mouth, but when he is asked in that context to condemn them and not be violent, he said, yep, no, stand back, stand by. He, stand by does not mean in this context, I don't think anyway, okay, get ready to siege. It means, no, 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 back off. 
That's what he was saying. But it proves that no matter what he says, it will never go enough. If he were to say, you know, I hereby condemn X, Y, Z for X, Y, Z, then the media would say, oh, well, well no, no, no. He, he, he made, you could tell there was a comma when he was speaking that didn't need to be there. It was just ridiculous. So uh, we'll be watching the next debates. I had actually hoped to go down to them, but with the uh, uh, border restrictions in place, I was still like, okay, I'll go. I'll cover them. But then they I weren't accrediting Canadian media to go to them, so. It's just like the uh, Leaders Debates Commission in Canada. I don't get allowed or I don't get accredited to cover them. But I will say that uh, the Debates Commission should uh, switch them to fireside chats. That's what we did when Peter McKay backed out in the uh, uh, leadership race for the Conservatives. And it tended to work out pretty well for us. I wanted to just uh, talk about a couple of silly stories here before we go on to an interview I'm very much looking forward to. An Irish court has ruled that Subway's bread is not actually bread. It was the Irish Supreme Court, which apparently exists, and they ruled that the bread served at Subway cannot be legally defined as bread under the tax code because it has too much sugar in it. And they found that the sugar content in the bread is five times the qualifying limit, meaning it's not a staple food. Therefore, it's not allowed to be tax exempt. So basically, it's uh, more of a pastry than a bread, they're saying about this. Uh, Subway did not respond to a request for comment from The Guardian. I mean, I find American bread and a lot of American products to be actually too sweet anyway. Uh, Subway is weird because I like it. It's consistent. Anywhere you go, you get it. It feels like it's a bit more healthy than McDonald's, even though that's a bit questionable and it depends what you do with it. I remember Subway sued a CBC. It was for something like $200 million, I think, because a CBC had written a story that the chicken that Subway puts on your sandwiches was only like 50% chicken DNA. And the rest was filler. And Subway like was so angry about it, they sued. And then a judge ended up dismissing the case outright. So uh, Subway, not the first time they've been challenged in courts or uh, over what they are serving people. It's still good. But just know that you're not necessarily getting something that is real bread if you get it in Ireland anyway. Shows how governments can just change definitions of things on a whim. And also, this is a kind of funny one. A British zoo has separated five foul-mouthed parrots who keepers say were encouraging each other to swear. The Lincolnshire Wildlife Centre has a colony of 200 grey parrots and they started working blue, doing blue material. And in particular, Billy, Eric, Tyson, Jade, and Elsie were swearing at each other. All five were swearing at each other, and they were having these very foul-mouthed conversations amongst each other. And at the museum, they decided, or the zoo, they decided this is no longer. Everyone apparently found it funny. The parrots were telling visitors to F off, and apparently uh, it brought a smile to a really hard year. But since then, they've separated them out of some sense of needing to think of the children, even though no one was complaining. So again, it's the uh, killjoys that are creating problems that do not exist. In fact, this probably would have been good for zoo attendance if you go there and it's like a, a Don Rickles roast. You go and you get roasted by the parrots, I would pay extra to go to a zoo where I get roasted by the parrots. So I think there was a very missed opportunity here. We'll be right back with Professor William McNally talking about academic wokeness versus academic freedom. That's coming up next on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. At what point does academic freedom and free speech cross the line into really propagandizing and advancing this woke agenda in spite of all of the things that universities are supposed to be? That's one of the discussions that's come about through a, a debate at Laurier University and other campuses across Canada and North America 
earlier this month, a scholar strike, which according to an op-ed in the Post-Millennial by two Laurier professors, has institutionalized propagandist teaching. One of the authors we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, Professor David Haskell. The other, Professor William McNally, joins me on the line now. Uh, Good to talk to you again, Professor. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, my pleasure. So what is the scholar strike? Well, it, it, it seems to have originated in the U.S. and then uh, some Canadian uh, academics uh, championed it and uh, they wanted everyone to take September 9th and 10th off, that's all faculty, and not do any administration or teaching, but, but instead hold teach-ins on um, anti-police brutality and then a whole line of uh, a laundry list of, of, of issues. So this would have been the first uh, the first two days of class, uh, September 9 and 10. Yeah, and that's the weirdest part. I mean, this is already an odd enough school year where classes have had to kind of amend how they're taught and move. most stuff has moved online. But to say we're not even going to teach, and this is not just for, you know, sociology profs, but this is for finance profs, for uh, chemistry profs, for everyone, right? Yeah, this it, it was the, you know, the, the spirit of the thing was is, was that everyone would do it. And it was championed by all the faculty unions. The Canadian Association of University Teachers promoted it. And then every faculty union, it seems, in Canada, there's a list on their website. Uh, and, you know, you're going to get into class as a student. And the first thing you get is 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 uh, sort of critical race theory, uh, you know, on, on the first day of your Shakespeare course. <laughs> Was this being pushed by any administrations or was it just by a few radicals in, in faculty associations? Well, yeah, at first it was it was just I heard about it from my faculty union who was forwarding an email that was sort of boilerplated from uh, a central source like CAUT. Uh, and, and we got really upset about it. Uh, we don't like the, the union uh, promoting these things, which are inherently political, uh, using their distribution list. But then that they would advocate uh, not teaching your discipline and teaching and said uh, the content that ScholarStrike was promoting seemed outrageous to us. So, in fact, David Haskell wrote an email to the administration and said, uh, you know, you have to condemn this. This is unacceptable. And then we were shocked to find a, a statement from the university administration wholeheartedly supporting ScholarStrike and encouraging faculty to not teach their disciplines, to teach the content provided by ScholarStrike. Uh, and 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 uh, violate you know the the inherent contract right like we're selling a product which is uh, our our courses uh, and the administration was saying no 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 uh, you'll just teach something else uh, that's very political instead of uh, what the student has paid uh, to receive. And that seems to be key here because you're you're not viewing this as a as a discussion of they don't have the right to pursue these things. I mean, you're a big believer in free speech and academic freedom, as am I. You're basically saying this is false advertising to the students. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's like a form of fraud. Uh, you know, scholar strike supporters are free to uh, support that opinion. I don't happen to agree with most of it. Of course, you know, we're all against pr- police brutality, of course. But uh, the laundry list of uh, demands uh, that they came up with uh, becomes farcical. Uh, One of their planks called on everyone to support uh, the custodial union at the University of Toronto. Apparently, the U of T is trying to outsource its custodial work to a third-party company. And uh, Scholar Strike wanted us to support the QP local in their fight against outsourcing of custodial work at the University of Toronto. Right. It's it has nothing to do with 
police brutality and and, uh, and and race. That's what George Floyd's memory is about now, is the who takes out the trash at U of T. Yeah, yeah. So it, it it's bizarre. It, it's like they weren't even serious ab- about their primary uh, cause and purpose. Um, but, you know, that's their right. And people want to support that. They're entitled to have that opinion. But the problem here is having a... Uh, there's two problems here. Is having the university... Uh, sort of act fraudulently with respect to the students and 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 offer to sell them something which is a, a course on say Shakespeare or accounting and then substitute it with critical race theory, uh, which is outrageous. And the other problem here is uh, having the university administration take a position on all of this. Uh, university administrations should be studiously agnostic on political issues and allow faculty and students to explore these issues, to, to, dis, to discuss them, and, and in that process, uh, sharpen our understanding. And if they come out and say, no, no, the right way to view this is that it's systemic racism and, and to take a critical theory lens, really uh, distorts the, the capacity of, of people to find their own opinions and uh, really puts a lot of uh, pressure on dissenting opinions. Students who, who might not agree with the administrative line uh, really are uh, at a disadvantage because uh, other students can hit them over the head by saying, hey, you know, we have the authority of the administration on our side and and so therefore we're right and you're wrong and you should shut up and, you know, we'll get a cancel mob going after you. Yeah, and that's, I think, something especially Laurier would be aware of with everything that went on with Lindsay Shepard, who's now a, a colleague of mine here at True North back in, in 2017. And you'd think Laurier would be keenly aware of what happens when administration gets involved in, in stuff like this. When I look at this story, I mean, the big problem is that this critical race theory and, and this narrative is injected into everything now. I mean, there used to be certain places where you'd expect to see it, certain faculties, but the fact that, as you mentioned, you going to your Shakespeare class or your accounting class is now uh, to some people supposed to be a, a learning opportunity about race relations suggests that they're really trying to expand this where there will be no safe space from it to use the uh, university lingo. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's infecting everything. Uh, you know, that the Lindsay Shepard affair, just to, to mention that, um, uh, when that happened, a, a central issue there was uh, was whether Lindsay had the right to show the agenda episode with Jordan Peterson and whether it was appropriate to the communication studies class. And she was eventually exonerated. Uh, and the university, the president came out with a statement saying, hey, it's really important that we uh, stick to the material that is you know, in the course description and is appropriate for the discipline. And she said that back in like late 2017, here we are you know, three years later, and now she's saying, oh, go ahead and teach critical theory. Um, it, it, it's now infused uh, our HR department, our administration. The president uses terms like uh, systemic racism and anti-racism. Uh, and these are critical race theory terms. And, and you know, once you start using that language, you're going to start using that lens for viewing the world. And it's only one lens. There's lots of other ways to view these phenomena. How many professors, maybe not an exact number, but how many actually took part in this? Or was it mostly this, you know, by email battle? Uh, in, in the scholar strike, it's it's almost impossible to tell uh, because all of the classes are now on Zoom. Um, so, so there's really no way of knowing. I would imagine a great number in the Faculty of Arts and the humanities because that's 
you know, where most of the, these uh, academics, quote unquote, uh, practice. But yeah, there's no way of knowing. And this is something as well that I, I find particularly troubling because you know it's not going to end here. And and at certain points, I, I mean, you, I, I know, have already cemented your fate as being uh, loathed by most of your colleagues by speaking out on these issues, as has uh, Professor David Haskell. But there are going to be a lot of other professors that perhaps are, are middle of the road on a lot of these issues that are going to look at this and say, OK, if I want to stay around, I have to jump on that train. Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh institutional pressure here to to conform to the orthodox opinion and not speak out against it. Um, both David Haskell and I have been getting mobbed on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram by uh, students and faculty uh, for speaking out about these issues. Um, so uh, you don't hear too many faculty speaking up, not at Laurier, not anywhere in Canada. It's, it's a pretty small group of people who are prepared to publicly even question any of this. Do you think the Laurier experience, because we have this, we had the Lindsay Shepard affair, is it distinct from other universities in North America, do you think, or is it just we're hearing about it more because of, you know, people like you and like Lindsay and, and like David Haskell and like Jordan Goldstein? Um, that's a good question. Uh, a, a little bit of it is just, you know, the circumstances around what happened to Lindsay uh, and then us jumping in to defend her and then um, getting turned on and becoming more vocal about it. Um, because it is happening in every university in North America. The, this critical theory is like a, a intellectual cancer that has creeped in everywhere. And it's into the human rights departments and the uh, university administrations as well. You know, you saw with uh, Donald Trump just signed an executive order banning uh, any critical race-based training uh, in any federal uh, department or uh, contractor. Yeah, that's huge. And and again, what people on the left are trying to do right now is conflate uh, critical race-based training with anti-racism. And, and that's a, a very dangerous leap because they're trying to position an argument so that if anyone opposes it, well, they're actually racist. Yeah, yeah. It, you noticed on the debate uh, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Chris Wallace referred to it as racial sensitivity training. He didn't say uh, anti-racism or critical race theory, uh, so he completely misrepresented it and made it look really benign. Because who wouldn't be against, you know, who would be against racial sensitivity training? That sounds very reasonable. We should all be more sensitive. But that's not what this is. This is about uh, a revolution in pulling down uh, the capitalist system and democracy and at universities pulling down reason uh, and the scientific method. And banning the outsourcing of uh, garbage collection to yes. the, the true yes. social right. justice battles of, of 2020. You know, if, if they were to focus only on that stuff, it wouldn't bother me as much. Uh, or one or the other, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Pick one. <laughs> pick one or the other. You can have two different movements. That's fine. But but don't lump them both into the same. I, I know that obviously the school still didn't uh, step in to to stop the scholar strike. But I'm curious. Did they give any response to uh, the letters that uh, you had put forward to the complaint that was put forward by uh, SAFS, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship? Any response at all? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. The Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, or SAFS. Uh, wrote a letter to Wilfrid Laurier uh, complaining about this, that it was a violation of, um, of, of the spirit of free inquiry that should guide universities. 
they also sent a letter to Dalhousie and one to U of T. So uh, Laurie wasn't the only one doing this. Um, but no, no, there's been no formal response to this. As far as I know, there hasn't been a statement uh, officially. Um, so as far as I can tell, uh, the new policy is if you want to be political in your classroom, go ahead. Which, you know, is outrageous. Uh, last year during the federal election, uh, I was supporting uh, Maxime Bernier and the People's Party. Uh, and uh, I have to admit that I was teasing my students uh, about the election and uh, mentioned it a little bit more than I should have. And uh, they weren't happy about it. I heard about it in the in the course evaluations, you know, and, and on reflection, I think rightly so. You know, it's it's it shouldn't be my place to use that platform to espouse my political beliefs. I should just be teaching the discipline that the students paid to learn about. And, you know, if we want to have a meeting after class in the bar uh, over a beer, you know, that would be the appropriate venue to talk about politics. Yeah, and I think your point is very valid there, that it doesn't go both ways. You don't have the same license on your political views to do what's been done under the scholar strike for people with opposing political views. No, 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 no. I... Um, because there's so few conservatives at the university, uh, they, they they get really surprised when they hear a conservative uh, view. Uh, just two weeks ago, we got an email from our uh, union talking about a, a climate committee. Uh, and the, the email started out with a, a reference to the fires in, in, in the Pacific Northwest and how this this uh, forces us to, to take emergency action to fight climate change. And I had just come across an article by Ross McKittrick at Guelph that where he, he had done a long study of uh, precipitation and found that it was just uh, trending. Um, it wasn't trending up. It was just fluctuating normally. And there was really you couldn't blame climate change for what's happening. And I wrote an email back to the author of this letter. And, and they said, yeah, you're right. You know, I wasn't aware of that literature, but I was using a little too much hyperbole and I probably shouldn't have. And it seemed to me like, well, you're just in an echo chamber then. You, you know, you, you, you never get challenged and you feel free to write an email to 550 faculty uh, being alarmist and assuming everyone's going to agree. Very well said. Not, by the way, I'll happily take you up on that offer to uh, chat about politics over a beer. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great, Andrew. Yeah, once, uh, once, once, once everyone's allowed to be in the same room as each other, we look forward to it. William McNally, Professor of Finance at Wilfrid Laurier University. The letter, fantastic, an op-ed in the post-millennial written by uh, Professor McNally and David Haskell. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for coming on. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great. Thanks, Andrew. Well, that does it for me. My thanks again to Professor McNally and all of you for tuning in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We'll be back with Canada's most irreverent talk show next week here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more of it, we need your support. Head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com and click donate to support the work that we're doing and stand up for independent media. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.